to Ephesians 3. One of the great challenges of the Christian life is to get information that we glean from the Word of God to translate into change in our daily lives. I mean, that seems to be the struggle, right? We all know things. It's in here. It feels like it's in here. But then it's like it doesn't actually move from here to action into a different way of of seeing the world and a different way of interacting with people. I mean, think about this entire series in Ephesians. This is kind of the core idea here, right? In the first three chapters, we're building up our knowledge, our identity, how we understand ourselves individually and corporately in Christ, all that that means. And we have to understand that. We have to build that foundation of knowledge In some ways, you could say we have to get the information into our heads, right, in chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapters 4 to 6, we're going to move into, okay, now that you know who you are, recall that, think about that, and then react. But it's getting from that recalling to the reacting that is, it's like something goes haywire in between there. It's like the the synapses stop firing and the, the information doesn't move from here and from knowing it and being able to state it, yes, I am in Christ, to acting as if we are in Christ. And so how does that identity actually function in day-to-day life? And that's the challenge. That's the challenge of the book of Ephesians. That's the burden, I think, of this book. It's like, how do you actually drive the car? It's like you've read the owner's manual, and now you've got to get in the car, and you've got to drive it and be safe in it and use it wisely. What bridges the gap? What gets you from this side to this side so that you are a changed person? I mean, there are lots of Christians who can articulate the gospel. They know the Romans road or this four spiritual laws or whatever it may be that you know. You can articulate some form or some way of explaining the gospel. You can even say, I know that in Christ we are united together. We are one new man, and I know I'm supposed to walk in love and unity with the people around me as the church, but then it's really hard to put that into practice and to functionally live that out. And so the question that I want to wrestle with this morning is, what brings about the motivation and the actions that result from our identity in chapters one to three. What bridges that gap? What helps you to drive the car successfully? And I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, would say this morning, prayer does. Prayer is one of the keys to translating information from here into actions in our daily lives. Prayer changes us. Prayer moves us, and prayer changes other people as well. And so as we're talking about our identity in chapters 1 to 3, it's really interesting that twice in these chapters, Paul stops and he prays for the believers at Ephesus. It's like he's building up all this information, and he knows, I don't want this to just be something that you can list on on a board. I want this to translate into daily life. And so the way to translate this into daily life is in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, he prays. 
And he prays that they would be able to grasp the truths that he is laying out for them, that they would know what it means to be in Christ. And now here at the end of this whole section, he's going to pray again, as if prayer is important to spiritual life. And so I think you could say this morning that this prayer is the bridge between identity and ethics, between what you know about yourself, how you understand yourself, being in Christ and as the church, identity, and then ethics, just how you live, how you act on this, what you do in your daily life. Prayer is the bridge between, between those two. And so today, we're going to look at this prayer in chapter 3. Zach read it for us this morning, and we're going to see three ways to pray for one another. And the reason that we're going to pray these things for one another is so that we can fulfill God's purposes as a church, so we can act on this, and we can actually be what God has called us to be as the church. So three ways to pray for one another. I gave you the shorthand version there. Three ways to pray for one another to fulfill God's purposes as the church. And the first one of these is vitally important that we have to pray with the appropriate posture. This is in verses 14 and 15. So if you were with us last week, we began chapter 3 and we looked at chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. And in chapter 3, we saw in verse 1 the same exact words that we find in verse 14. Look at verse 1, for this reason. And then in verse 14, he says again, for this reason. And so it's the same words there. And but what I told you last week was it's like Paul is beginning to pray in verse 1, and it's like he takes a bit of a rabbit trail. Now, a rabbit trail, that terminology sounds kind of purposeless and useless, but that's not what he's doing. He's digressing a bit in order to make a point about his ministry to the Ephesians. He wants them to understand the role that he has played and what his ministry has looked like in their salvation and in their life together as believers. And so he does that in verses 2 to 13, and now he gets back to his prayer in verse 14. And so what you could say from that is you've got this prayer in verse 1 that he starts and then doesn't finish, and he actually goes to it in verse 14. So this prayer is really built on chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You're not going to go back and read all of that right now, but that section deals with the unity of the church. God has brought diverse people together into the church to live as his church, as one new man, and he summarizes that whole section in verses 19 to 22, and I want you to look there. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so then he, in verse 1, he goes right into this prayer, digresses about his ministry, and then in verse 14, he picks up this prayer again. So what you could say is that Paul is actually praying for their spiritual maturity. He's praying for the fulfillment of verses 19 to 22. And that spiritual maturity, that growth together, cannot come without the right mindset, without the appropriate posture. So look what he says in verse 14. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father. Now, this comes across maybe as unremarkable to us because we tend to associate prayer with being on your knees, with bending your knees. But during this time, it was actually pretty common to pray standing up. It wasn't inappropriate at all. If you think back to Luke chapter 18, you have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And what are they both doing? They're both standing, praying in the temple. So this was an appropriate posture for people to pray in. But people did on occasion kneel. And kneeling was a little bit extra special. And what kneeling indicated was this person was humbly approaching God. I mean, it was, it was a, a little bit more of a drastic statement by your physical posture. It meant that you felt a great sense of unworthiness. And it meant that you recognized the lordship of the one you were praying to. You knew your place before the one who you were praying to. You knew who you were approaching. You were coming before a king, and he had all authority. And so you came appropriately to him. So when Paul writes this here, he might not be physically kneeling as he's writing it, but this is the posture of his heart. He understands the right way to approach God, and he understands that because of who God is. And that's what you find in verse 15. Why a posture of humble submission to God? Because of who he is. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul is saying every class of person, every grouping of people on earth, and interestingly enough, in heaven, every spiritual being, every angel, every demon, every principality, every power, every authority receives its name from God, no matter who you are. To give someone a name means that God brings them into existence and that he has dominion and authority over them. And so Paul is saying here, we come humbly before God because he has named everyone and everything. He has brought every type of person, every type of being into existence. He has given them their role. He has given them their place all the heavenly beings included, and he exercises sovereignty and dominion and authority over them. And so this is a vital posture for us to take as believers when we come to God, one of humility. Really, if you think about it, chapters one to three, the entire, all three of these chapters have been spent with God essentially naming us, right? I mean, he's telling us who we are. He's saying, you are in Christ. You are one new man. I'm telling you what your role is, and I'm telling you who you are. I have brought about new life by salvation, by grace to you. So you need to understand who you are, and you need to respond appropriately to who I am in humble submission to me. And so you can't put this identity in chapters 1 to 3 into practice unless you know who you are before, humbly before a sovereign and a holy God. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been learning how to study the Bible better together. A group of us have been meeting, and we go through passages every other week, but in the off week, we watch a video together. And there's this pastor who's teaching us about 
uh, what it means to study the Bible and uh, different aspects of this, and we discuss those videos together. Um, and it's been very, very helpful, I think. Uh, it's been helpful to me. I think it's been helpful to others. Um, but every week when he does these video lectures, he, he draws a little picture on the board to illustrate the point he's making. So this last week's was pretty funny because he drew a picture of a stick figure leaning against a lamppost, and he said that this is a drunk person leaning against a lamppost. And his point with that was, there are two ways we can approach the Bible. One way is we can use the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost. We use it for what we need it for. And we lean up against it and try to get what we want out of the Bible. We get support from it for whatever it is that we want to do or whatever we, it is we think we need to do. And so we use it. And then he went on to say the correct posture is not leaning against it to use it for what we want to use the Bible for, but it's actually standing under the light of the lamppost and allowing the Bible to bring light to our situation and to change the way we see things and to dictate how we should think and how we should feel. It's coming to the Bible on its own terms, not using it for what we want to use it for. So how are you approaching your Bible and what God says? Are you using it for what you need? Are you justifying a position that you already have and something you already want to do? Or do you humbly on your knees, come before the sovereign God of the universe and understand that he has written a book and he has clearly laid out for us the gospel and then how we should live as a result of the gospel. And do we come to the scriptures and say, I am going to let the Bible stand over me and I'm going to let the Bible determine how I think and how I feel and how I act and I'm gonna shape my life according to the Bible and not use the Bible for what I already wanna do and how I already want to live. And because this sovereign God who has given everyone his name, uh, their name, has revealed himself to us through this book, we better listen. We better come with this approach. And so a major purpose of prayer here that I think you see from Paul's approach is that we pray not just to get things from God, but we pray in order to have our hearts changed. We pray in order to let the word of God do its work in our hearts to shine a light on our situation and our desires and to expose who we are and then change us. And that's the posture Paul takes here and that's the posture we all need to take together and pray for one another if we're gonna really be who God has called us to be as the church. And that posture and that desire for change is exactly what Paul prays here in the second way we should pray for one another. So we pray with the appropriate posture of humble submission. Then, secondly, we petition God for power for spiritual maturity. This is the heart of the prayer. This is verses 16 through 19. So, in these verses, if you read through them, there are a lot of phrases here, and everything can get jumbled up, and it's hard to understand exactly what Paul is praying for. But there essentially are two requests here. And I want to try to make those as clear as I can, and then we're going to talk through them. Each of these main requests has a purpose. 
So the first request is found in verses 16 and then the first part of verse 17. So look there with me. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So that's the core of Paul's request. What's he asking for? He wants you to be strengthened with power. And then the result of that is in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there's a request that you'd be strengthened. And then there's a result of that that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? And the second request is found in verse 18, that you may have strength. So it's a very similar request, right? He's, he's praying that you would have strength to comprehend. He wants you to have the ability to be able to comprehend something. We'll talk about what that is, but the purpose of that is found at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So two requests and two purposes, and I'm going to put them on the screen for you. You can see up here, request, purpose, request, purpose in these verses. So both requests here have to do with power, with strength, and with ability. That's essentially what Paul is praying for these believers. So let's look at the first one here in verses 16 and 17. The heart of this request is that we would be strengthened with power. Notice in verse 16, this power comes to us through the Holy Spirit, but it's according to God's riches in his glory. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So this power comes to us and is provided to us out of God's riches out of his inexhaustible character, which is his glory. It's all of who he is. God's limitless character flows out from him through the Holy Spirit to us, and we receive strength and power from that. Now, what's amazing here is it's not like God's storehouse of power is depleted as we receive power. He doesn't go down in power and we go up. He has a limitless supply, a boundless supply. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 8, the boundless, the inexhaustible riches of Christ. You can never get to the bottom of them. And he continually pours that out through his spirit on us. He has all the resources that, that we could ever need. And so it's according to his resources that we, Paul wants us to be strengthened. But I want you to notice where we are strengthened. Look at verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is not praying for physical power here, physical strength. He's not praying that the Ephesians would suddenly be able to run a 4-5-40 and dunk a basketball and power lift 500 pounds. He's not praying for physical strength, obviously here. He's praying for them to be strengthened, for their inner being to be reinforced. What's the inner man? The inner man is your heart. It's everything inside of you. It's your mind. It's your will. It's your emotions. Your inner man is the part of you that thinks and that wants and that loves. Your inner man is the moral part of you. It's the part that chooses what to believe and how to behave. 
Your inner man is the motivational core of who you are. It's what you want. It's what you're pursuing. It's what you love. It's what you're going after. And so Paul here prays that this part of who you and I are would grow stronger. And that really gets to the heart of what we were talking about earlier. How do we put our identity, this knowledge, into action? What's the connecting piece there? And Paul is praying here that we would be strengthened in our inner man so that we could put these things into action. So why don't we live out the unity that we have in Christ? Why don't we love others the way we we should? Why can't I seem to stop responding in frustration and anger? Why do we give in to temptation? Why do we struggle with sin? Because we need our inner man to be strengthened. We need power there. We need our motivations and our desire for God to grow stronger, to be reinforced, to be more powerful. And Paul prays that this would happen in us for a particular purpose. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he's not praying that Jesus would enter into their hearts by his spirit because these are believers. And so Christ already resides in their hearts. But notice I use the word reside And here, Paul prays that they would dwell, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. It's a different word than just residing in their hearts, than being there. This is a very strong word. And this word is the difference between staying in a hotel and dwelling in your house. It's a very different experience. This word is a permanent taking up residence. Jesus is moving in here. He's making your inner man his home. He's redecorating. He's refurnishing your house, your inner man. And so you and I need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. We need to have our will and our motivations and our desires built up and strengthened so that we are able to handle Jesus moving in. We're able to handle him making our hearts his residence his home. We need strength because he's going to knock down walls and he's going to put new flooring in and he's going to tear out the cabinets and put in new ones. When Jesus moves in, our thinking changes. It should change. Our desires change. It's not just your outward actions. You don't just need the strength to do something outwardly. You need new desires. And that's what Jesus plans on doing to those who have been united to him. He's going to rearrange things. Your affections will be changed. And so Paul is praying for strength and motivation here so that we can be different people, that there will be a fundamental redesign of who we are at the core of our being. So that in five years, you and I will think differently and want differently. And we'll look back and we'll go, I am a new person. I feel like everything's been rearranged in here. I love different things. I want different things. Man, I want to be in church with fellow believers, and I want to spend time with them, and I want to talk about the Word of God, and things are different now. But that doesn't happen overnight. 
We need strength for that to happen. It is a fundamental redesign of who we are. Let me give you an example of this. This has been helpful to me recently. So James chapter 1, right? Here's this passage. Let me read this to you. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like trials and difficulties. I prefer to be comfortable. I like smooth sailing. I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation. I would rather things go swimmingly. But when Jesus moves in by faith and dwells in our hearts by faith and we trust him, then passages like this help me to start seeing trials in a different light. Because what does he say here? Count it all joy. Whoa, that's not how I naturally respond to difficulties. I don't count it joy. I don't think about the end goal of this. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, what a joy that would be to be spiritually perfect and complete, not free from sin, but mature and whole. And that's the work Jesus wants to do. But I'll tell you, I can't respond with joy to trials without my inner man being strengthened. Jesus is going to have to do some serious work in this heart for me to respond this way. But that's the work he wants to do. And that's what he plans on accomplishing. I need the mental and emotional fortitude to be able to look at a trial and say, I trust Jesus in the midst of this. And so I'm going to count this joy because I know what he's doing. He's tearing out cabinets and he's putting in new ones that are way better than the old ones. And I'm going to have new desires And I'm going to go through life as a different person, but I need the grace to trust him. I need the empowerment to trust him. But I don't just need it as an individual. I need you to pray this for me. And I need to pray this for you, that God will do this work in us. And that's exactly what Paul prays here that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may reside or dwell in your hearts through faith. But that's only one request that he prays there. He prays another one as well. Let me put these back on the screen here. Second request, that you may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Now, what's really interesting here is before he actually gets to this request, look at the end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So this is already who you are. You're already rooted and grounded in love. I mean, that's what he's been describing to us in chapters one to three. It's the foundation of God's love expressed to us in Jesus Christ. We have all of these benefits here. I mean, listen to chapter one, verses three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And he goes on and talks about those benefits, but but love is the centerpiece of our relationship with God. 
It's the soil that we grow in. But Paul reminds us of that in verse 17, and then he prays that we would grow in our grasp of that love. So we're planted in that soil, but we need to understand that more and more, and we need to grasp that in a bigger and better way. Look at the rest of verse, or the first part of verse 18. May, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is a communal effort with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. So he's praying something similar to the first request, right? That we would be strengthened. And here he's praying that we would have strength. It's kind of the same idea, but now he's praying that you and I with each other, as we live life together, that we would have the ability. We need the ability with all the saints to comprehend God's love. And we need that ability because this is no ordinary love. Look at verse 18 again. That we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He wants us to know all the different aspects of this love. And this is a love that is vast. And that's why he can talk about it this way. It goes on and on in every single direction. You can explore this love for eternity and never reach the end of it, whichever direction you go. There's always more to uncover. Go in any direction you want to, and there's, you're always in the middle of this love. And he builds on that in verse 19. Look what he says. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Go in any direction and you won't find the end. And that's because this surpasses knowledge. You can't reach the end of it. There's never a top. There's never a bottom to this love. So here's the bottom line in what Paul is praying for us here. We need power. We need strength to know this love. We need this power and this strength because we can never reach the bottom of it. He knows we're acquainted with Christ's love, right? I mean, we started down this path. We started to explore Christ's love. We know the love of God with the rest of the saints. But what Paul's praying here is, I want you to grow in this because you really actually don't know this love all that well. None of us do. It surpasses knowledge. We can't reach the end of it. You and I do not appreciate what we have. And that's not something to feel guilty over. That's just the reality of the situation. Not something to feel bad about. That's the glory of Christ's love. We just don't appreciate what we have. We haven't even really gotten in the ball game yet. Based on Paul's prayer here, I can unequivocally say this morning that none of us in this room know God's love well enough. We just don't. And Paul prays for the Ephesians and we should pray for one another because we won't grow in our comprehension of this love without God's strengthening power. You can't plumb the depths of this. You can't even start to do that without his strengthening power. We don't have it in ourselves, so God has got to strengthen us to start to understand this and to grasp it. Why? Why does he want us to grow in our understanding of God's love? Look at the end of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
I mean, what's he praying here? That you and I would grow in spiritual maturity. Being filled with the fullness of God. Look like God. Look like Jesus Christ. This is exactly what he says in chapter 4. You can look over in chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To be filled with all the fullness of God is to grow up to look like Jesus Christ. To reflect the character of Christ from the inside out. So this is to have your inner man changed to look like Jesus. To respond to life like Jesus. And the pathway to that spiritual maturity, to looking like Jesus, Paul says here is a greater grasp of God's love for us. That's the pathway. So he's not telling us here, listen, I want you to love God more. That's not what he's praying. I want you to love God more. That's not what he's praying. He's praying here for power for you and I to understand God's love, that we would be enthralled with God's love for us. So are you struggling with sin today, temptation? At least one of the weapons that we use against that is a greater grasp of God's love. It almost sounds counterintuitive. You know, it's like, oh, I gotta do something, I gotta, and we should, we should fight against sin, but at the same time, one of the weapons that we use in the fight against sin is a greater understanding of God's love for us. Reacquaint yourself with God's love for you demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about this passage, I think, is that Paul very clearly sees prayer as a key part of understanding God's love, as, as part of the strengthening that we need, the building up of our souls to be able to comprehend God's love for us. He sees prayer as playing a key role in knowing God's love. And when we're strengthened, when we know God's love, that leads to spiritual maturity, and that spiritual maturity is spelled out in chapters 4 through 6. That's what we're going to look at in the react section of this book. It's looking like Jesus Christ. And so I think here prayer is the connection piece. It's the tendon that connects the muscle and the bone. And the bone's the structure, and then the muscle moves that bone and gives it power. It's able to accomplish things. And a tendon connects those two so that the work can be done. And I think here, prayer brings our identity, the structure of who we are, together with the ethics, with what it looks like in daily life, with action. And prayer connects those two and brings them together. And then we can live out our identity and act on it. And so we petition God for one another that we would grow in power and in strength. And that brings us to our last way to pray for one another. Verses 20 and 21, we praise God for his plans for the church. Now the beauty of all this is that this strengthening doesn't depend on us. You don't have to go back and garner up the, mortal, the moral fortitude to be able to do this. Look what he says in, in verse 20. Now, he's praising God, now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He's prayed, Paul has prayed for power and ability, and now he says, look, I've prayed for this power and ability for you, and now I'm so confident in God and the work that he's doing in his church to accomplish his purposes that I'm going to praise him now because he's the one that is able to do more. He has the power to do more than you and I ask or think. We'll ask him for power, and we should ask him for power, but man, he has so much power, he can do beyond what we ask him for. We have these goals and plans, and he is well beyond that in the glory that he's going to bring to himself through the church. So ask God and expect him to work. Expect him to change your inner being and to rearrange the furniture. But understand that when you ask him, he's going to go above and beyond what you ask or think. Now, the tricky part about this verse is this is like one of those great calendar verses that we rip out of context and put on a calendar It's no slight to you if you have it on a calendar. Just think of it in context. It's like a we could turn this into a little motivational mantra that we say, and it becomes something different than what is intended here. And we think, well, God can do more than I ask or think, and so I'll get better grades in school than I thought I would. Or my business will do do better than I ever hoped it could. My house will sell for more than I thought it would, because God can do more than I ask or think. But that's not what this is saying here at all. Notice where God's power is concentrated. Verse 20, according to the power at work within us. It's very specifically focused. Paul is praising God here because his power will work and strengthen our inner man, exactly as he has prayed in verses 16 to 19. And of course, as that happens, and as you and I are strengthened, as we pray these things for one another, and we grow to look more like Jesus Christ, that leads to God being glorified in his body. Look at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this has really been the goal of chapters 1 to 3. I mean, he's bringing the whole thing to a conclusion with this benediction here, and he's saying this is what the whole purpose has been. You are saved. You are brought into this body with other believers for the purpose of bringing God glory. God is building a people who will be unified together around the Lord Jesus and his grace, and he will display his wisdom as they trust God, as their inner man is changed, and they grow to look like Jesus, and that will bring God glory and honor because of the work that he has done, and that has been his plan all along. But here, he ends this prayer with praise, because you may not have thought of this before, but praise is one of the ways that God confirms his truths to us, the truths of his word. I mean, we talked about making that connection between what we know and how we act, Well, praise of God, worship of him, is one of the ways that those truths translate from our heads to our actions. That's one of the ways that happens. When you sing on Sunday morning, you are affirming truths that are working their way into who you are and how you see the world, and they are translating into actions. 
Think about Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. As we sing corporately together, we're actually teaching one another and we're admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You're not just praising God in worship, but as you do that, it's having an impact on those around you this morning. And that's the the point of the entire book of Psalms. As Israel was to sing those songs and affirm the truths of God's relationship with them, his covenant with them, it strengthened them, it built them up. It was the goal, at least. It was to change their inner being. They were to delight in God's plans and character and then live a different lifestyle because of the worship that they had participated in. And so that's one of the reasons that we praise God on Sunday mornings. He's certainly worthy of our praise, but a byproduct of that is that you and I are changed as we worship him. So all of this together, how we pray for one another. So let's, let's pray for one another. This is a rebuke to me as I've studied this this week. I need to be appropriating the way Paul prayed for this church body. Let's not just pray for physical needs, although those are important. Let's pray according to the way Paul prayed. Let's pray with the appropriate posture of humility before God. Let's petition God for strength to know his love and to grow in spiritual maturity. And then let's praise him for the work that he's doing in our midst. He is rearranging the furniture right now in people's hearts through his word. He's doing that work in this church body. So let's praise him for it and expect him to do above and beyond what we can ask or think. Let's understand that as he does that work, he has big picture plans for his church that ultimately result in his glory and his honor and our good. And so prayer is the connection piece between who we are and how we live. So let's make that connection together as a body for one another, for our good and God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we certainly do not utilize this glorious gift of prayer as we should. We are able to approach you, the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord of the church, our Savior, We're able to approach you in prayer and seek your face and know you and ask you to work in our hearts and change us. So I pray that we would utilize this glorious gift that we've been given. We can come directly into your presence through the Lord Jesus Christ and we can cry out to you for all of these things. So I pray that we would do this for ourselves, certainly individually, but Lord, I pray that we would We would seek your face for one another on behalf of those around us, that throughout the week we would think about people in the body and we would pray not just for their physical well-being, but we would pray that you would strengthen them so they could know your love. And by knowing your love, that they would grow to look like Jesus Christ and be filled to all the fullness of God. Thank you for what you're doing among us and in us. We beg you to continue, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.